Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, Season 3, Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. The Wirecard Saga is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you, Tom, and welcome back, listeners. Now, this episode, I catch us up on all the various court case activities because, well, really, the episode right behind this one will pull back the veil, the corporate veil, that is. But you know, before we can get to that, this episode is really to catch everyone up on the recent goings-on with all things Wirecard trial and, well, let's just say the laundromat keeps giving. So, here we go, 10 days of trial, and what have we got thus far? Well, first of all, kudos to the Munich Regional Court. Wirecard proceedings have absolutely swamped the Fourth Grand Criminal Chamber. And I'm not just talking about the Braun Ballenhaus von Urfer trial. On the criminal law side, the Chamber is responsible for the not only the first major indictment on the Wirecard proceedings, and for that there are five professional judges, including two supplementary, and you've already heard about those, right? The three judges plus two, a bit like uh, your 12 jurors plus two, and an additional four lay assessors, including two supplementary lay assessors. But in addition to that, there's an entire support staff, constables, clerks, judicial officers, as well as other administrative personnel. In fact, Wirecard cases have so choked up the fourth grand criminal chamber, no further new non-Wirecard cases are currently being added to the docket. The court had actually set up a further white-collar criminal chamber just to hear non-Wirecard cases. That's how full they are. Literally, the Munich Regional Court now has an entire criminal chamber dedicated exclusively to Wirecard cases. Ah, the company that just can't stop distinguishing itself at the cost of taxpayers. As the court's own press release has noted, the preparations for this primary hearing within the 4th Criminal Division in Stetternestras in particular was a wee bit time-consuming. But it hasn't restricted it hasn't been just restricted to the, the criminal court. Over on the civil side, a total of nine, nine banking chambers and two chambers for commercial matters have all been stuck with wire card. For example, two major proceedings have already been concluded in the fifth chamber for commercial matters, for one of which the court also had to carry out an accreditation procedure. The Munich Regional Court has received a total of 2,251 civil lawsuits in connection with Wirecard's demise. And more than half of these, or 1,178 proceedings, are claims for damages against the auditing firm EY. And folks, this doesn't count all the other lawsuits in other countries, other jurisdictions. This will also include, however, this number does also include the one recently filed by Commerce Bank 
There's the one seeking approximately 200 million euros in damage from EY, who else? And separately from all these other actions, 407 lawsuits are directed against former CEO Marcus Braun only in the Munich Regional Court. I'm not counting all the other lawsuits against Herr Braun. Is Braun ever going to again see the outside of a courtroom in his lifetime? Does he have the Sitzfleisch? Should have gone to law school, Marcus, yeah? Now, a few proceedings have already been settled, including the very first Wirecard lawsuit, which most of you know about, right? This was the one that showed up in the court back in the spring of 2019, pre-implosion, because that was the action for damages brought by Wirecard, the management board, that is, against the FT. Now, a few months after the bankruptcy, Michael Yaffa, the insolvency administrator, right, had that lawsuit withdrawn. But it's the really the only one that's concluded outside of the two I mentioned over in this commercial matter chamber. And it could be a long time before the claims for damages against EY are settled. And more on EY in a moment. The other company that just can't seem to quit. A test case is pending before the Bavarian Supreme Court, again, outside of Munich. Once the decision has been made there, it will serve as a guideline for the other lawsuits. So remember, this is far from over. Now, over on the civil side, the main action relating to the arrest proceedings against Marcus Braun, and and those have been decided, but it's currently pending at the Munich Regional Court, if anybody's paying attention, case number 5HK017452-21, if you're keeping track, that is. Now, deadlines for submission of written pleadings for that case are currently still running. Oh, yes, we're only some of the way there on this second case. And remember, there are 400 and, well, six to go. <laughs> Now, the oral proceedings on this on this case uh, against Braun are not expected to begin before fall of this year, 2023. And at present, the proceedings already comprise over a thousand pages. So, so much more to come. Now, as the president of Munich's regional court, Dr. Beatrix Schobel, has said, quote, the various Wirecard proceedings are having an impact on us at the Munich Regional Court on many levels. Gee, you think? She went on to say how proud she is of all the members of the court who are helping to cope with the considerable, considerable organizational effort required, thanks to the God. And many of the judges, she says, have devoted or are still devoting a large portion of their working time exclusively to wire card matters. That is, all those cases for just one dirty company. Really, the court should send a bill to Marsalek and his buddies for the extra court hours and, and expenses, don't you think? Now, the Munich court has even had to establish an entirely new media transmission room in the Palace of Justice just to accommodate all of the wire card proceedings. Yes, German taxpayers, you footed that bill too. So remember to thank all those footloose and fancy-free wirecard execs who have been allowed to toddle off and start new payment processing companies. That's right, monies that could have been or gone into so many other good uses 
are being dedicated to keeping the Munich court operating for these literally hundreds, nay thousands, of lawsuits. Now, really, I need an economist to work with me on calculating the true cost to Germany of this corporate disaster. Anyone? All right, so let's turn back to the criminal side of the court, to the trial we have all been following. Recall, we're only 10 days of hearings in. There are 86 more hearings scheduled just for 2023, and these days will only be heard twice a week, so progress is not going to be swift. Let's back up and do a recap, shall we? Day six of the trial, Herr Braun, the quiet Vanhofer and little Ollie Bellenhaus. And Bellenhaus can't stop yammering, holding fast to his claim that the third-party acquirers were pure fiction. When asked by the court whether the third-party businesses existed, Bellenhaus said, quote, I answer in no uncertain terms, no. Bellenhaus made specific allegations against Brown, describing in detail the falsification of documents and sales. Quote, of course we came up with that, referring to the escrow accounts in Southeast Asia. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to step on dear Lamostetta's feet here, but I say to that, tosh, rubbish, and oh, tell me another porky pie, Ollie. Those TPAs were alive and laundering as fast as they could move dirty money through accounts. As you'll hear in the next episode, I discuss a recent Irish case that features one of those TPAs. And there was a whole lot of illicit money flowing there. The TPAs and Wirecard worked in tandem to move money all over the world. The TPAs of Wirecard most certainly existed something the Irish High Court recognised in the related case I'm about to discuss in the episode after this one. But little Ollie here seems to be conveniently forgetting that it was his name, alongside a few others, that was not, on, not only on Wirecard Bank's licence from the Bank of Ireland in order to operate in that jurisdiction, but on Wirecard UK in Ireland, Wookie, through which TPA proceeds flowed. Ollie, your nose continues to grow. Ah, Fremdschamen. Now, Wookie fielded a bit of money from TPAs in Ireland that subsequently flowed through that wire card bank that your name, Oliver, was attached to. Listeners do try to take in this episode and the next together because they really are conjoined in that the TPAs were very real in the sense that the companies were created for the purpose of running dirty money through them. Piercing the corporate veil of said TPAs will facilitate the recovery of assets for the purposes of providing restitution to, say, oh, I don't know, all the aggrieved, the, long, uh, the loan givers and the vendors defrauded. And, well, <clears throat> there are some other entities, little Ollie's name and others, are connected to that benefited from this laundering scheme. And now that we have had this precedent-setting case in Ireland... Well, that just opens the door to all manner of fun we can have with Herr Bellenhaus and others. Mm. I'm spoiling the fun for the next episode. Okay, Bellenhaus, silly old bear, told the Munich court that it was none other than Rüdiger Trautmann who made the initial introductions to the Asian TPAs. And I do have an entire episode in the works on Trautmann and Nokelman. But we need only look at Trautmann's related entities, including TPAs he brokered, to see that they were not fake at all, but companies with active accounts. 
if only Wirecard Asia VP Ido Kanayawan hadn't skipped out of Singapore, he with an active Interpol red notice, we could hear his version of events. I suppose Kanayawan could be trying to lose himself in the rural hinterlands of his home Indonesia. Though the timing is a bit awkward, as just months after he did his runner, Singapore and Indonesia cut a bilateral extradition treaty. Maybe Kunaiwan was able to catch that slow boat to the Philippines, where Bellenhouse claims Ido was well-connected. Of course, Bellenhouse claimed Ido brought Tolentino to Wirecard. <coughs> I don't know that bragging about bringing in Tolentino is something one wants to do. This is the guy that got fired from the Philippine Ministry of Transport for questionable dealings with Duterte's sister, and only, whom only recently the Philippines Public Attorney's Office, Chief Persido Rueda Ocasta, slammed for besmirching the good reputation of the PAO. Well, <laughs> Tolentino is now a Philippine Labour Party candidate, and since the Philippine Department of Justice last year dropped all those charges against him and Marsalek and... Judas Seng Young Pei and other Janes and John Doe's for insufficient evidence. Well, he's now a f- footloose, fancy free man. Maybe Ito's hanging with him. No doubt he's been given Philippine citizenship by now. I know Bellenhouse talked about meeting with Ito in Dubai, but that was ages ago. Years ago, really. Oh, well, soon enough, we'll start to get our results from the Singapore cases against James Agawadhana, Chai Ai Lim, and Si Li Wee, not to mention O'Sullivan and Rajaranton. So many more sources of information about those Asian TPAs yet to come. Poor Bellenhouse. It's befuddling trying to keep these stories straight. Hard to save one's skin as a witness for the prosecution when one needs conflicting stories to keep the narrative alive. But Bellenhouse kept the drama turned high, describing panic and huge chaos when auditors made inquiries about the TPAs, claiming Wirecard management's only goal goal was to deceive the auditors. Really? Only goal? Quote, the auditor needed something. And then the panic ensued. Doesn't this sound like the, the trailer for a horror movie? Bellenhouse went on to say, It was a huge mess. God, he missed his calling on the stage. According to Bellenhouse, Marsalek, Von Erfer, and he were personally involved in the falsification of bookings, contracts, logs, and other documents. Personally, I don't know when Marshallik found the time between jetting off with O'Sullivan to the Maldives and Mauritius, meeting co-conspirators in Vienna, nipping over to Russia to see his FSB handlers, hitting the clubs, touring Syria, trafficking stolen classified information to multiple intelligence agencies, club hopping, and stopping by the tailor to have his coat lined in rare fur, oh yeah, and shopping at Tiffany, and having zero financial background. When exactly did he find time to put his personal hand on the falsification of these documents? Did Marshalik have the tipex out? Was he surfing the net for fonts to use as logos for said fake companies? Ballenhaus then contradicted himself about only the inner circle of Wirecard execs being responsible for the falsification of the TPAs by claiming there was a, quote, technician based in Canada and also in India, huh? who helped them with the falsification of documents. According to Bellenhaus, that te- said technician reputedly, quote, the best technician Wirecard had. 
Now he's an inside guy, when moments before he was an external person, oh, do make up your mind, Ollie, was supposedly the best technician, worked with him, Bellenhouse, Kurniawan, and Marshalik, I guess he had to put the tipex down, to falsify, wait for this, 200 million data records. <laughs> was each record carefully handcrafted? Have you noticed, listeners, how often the tugged threads lead back to Canada? I should do an episode. I think I will. I think I'll do an episode dedicated to the Canuck connection. At any rate, Bellenhouse then claims Braun personally took care of easing the requirements of the auditors who demanded insight into the TPA documents. Bellenhouse reports that on the KPMG meeting with the Wirecard execs back on October 24th, 2019, Remember, the topic was the special audit by KPMG, triggered by that internal investigation out of Wirecard Asia. Okay, right. So, Ballenhouse claims, quote, we didn't have any transaction data that could be presented in any way. Lily, oh, little Ollie, really, you really should be on the stage. Don't put your son on the stage. So, quote, it was absolutely clear there was no data. Okay, chicken little. But according to Ballenhouse, Braun said he spoke to the CEO of KPMG Global, as in the global chairman of KPMG International Limited, the UK limited company? I don't think so. And that it would all be all right. Then across the courtroom, Ballenhouse looks pointedly at Braun and says, it was a pure hoax statement. Ollie didn't quite nail this detail. He was accusing Braun of calling the head of the particular audit and allegedly fixing it with KPMG and then telling his Wirecard colleagues that the audit wouldn't actually be that bad because he'd fixed it. Now, through all of this, Bellenhouse tells the court he truly, truly yearned for all involved, himself included, that they and the company would just return to behaving what he called legally a sort of Damascene Road conversion to the path of righteousness. Uh-huh. Instead, he claims the alleged fake deals just kept getting bigger. Quote, at some point, you lose control and it was just too late. We lost control. Wirecard, he said, was a money-burning machine and had been consistently losing money since 2013 because the company had been no longer able to cover its spiraling costs. Quote, millions went out. You can't count it that quickly. Oh, Ollie, how vexing. You couldn't count all the laundered money. Uh, you longed to do the right thing, yet you claimed the company was hemorrhaging money back to 2013. But for seven more years, you continued to pine not to engage in fraud, but did so anyway? You were still an officer of Wirecard Bank, registered in Ireland and Wookiee up until 2020. <laughs> Being perfectly unverblumped here, I'm not really seeing your reluctance or hesitation to engage in fraud and money laundering over the course of eight plus years. Was it in the way you purchased those sports cars or formed those offshore entities? Was it the reluctance? Is that what you're... Was that what you were signing as your conscience? <laughs> day seven. Yeah, that was only day six. We finally hear from Von Erfer. Well, not the man, but his counsel. 
So Sabine Statter, defence counsel for Van Erfer, stands up, files another motion to stay the proceedings. Now recall, I told you a couple of episodes back, bronze counsel Dearlam had filed a similar motion straight out of the gate, literally day two of the proceedings. Like Dearlam, Stata also accused the public prosecutor of unlawful actions and serious investigative errors, alleging prosecutors of having withheld evidence from the defence statements of key witnesses and suspects that have been available for months. Stata also accused federal investigators of failing to secure an important email mailbox and of failing to obtain records from Bellenhaus's private foundation account trust in Liechtenstein. Now, this is important for the trial because ex-CEO Braun, in particular, accuses Bellenhaus of having stashed away millions of euros in company funds. Durlam claims he and Stato were flooded with extensive new documents shortly before the start of the trial. Now, on day seven, despite uh, Stato filing this motion, the proceedings continued with no decision from the court on either Durlam's or Stato's motions. By day nine, Bellenhaus has continued saying Wirecard, quote, had no more time for real customers as it was too busy, too busy, fabricating supposed software customers and faking contracts as part of the company's greater fraud to pump up its balance sheet. Now, in his questioning by the presiding judge, Marcus Fodish, Bellenhaus testifies that the fake software contracts with customers served to, quote, improve Wirecard's Wirecard's results, but the alleged services had no real basis. Quote, monkeys in suits, he called the TPAs. Hmm. He accused Wirecard of essentially a lack of ambition, saying uh, that if his colleagues had just been innovative, if the company had just been innovative with respect to legitimate products, well, maybe they wouldn't all be standing in court right now. He credits his managerial colleagues' ambition and creativity for creating these false TPA partners, but that's the extent of what he credits them with. And then we get into Ollie's compensation. Good grief. Now, recall, Bellenhaus joined the Wirecard family very early on. Oliver, this comes back to your supposed reluctance to engage in fraud. 20 years of fighting and beating down your better angels? Such stamina. Bellenhaus claimed Wirecard had barely changed its name when he came over in 2002 from DZ Bank. He was allegedly a prized employee who moved up the ranks at Wirecard before being rewarded or shunted off, depending on how one looks at it, to Dubai. Well, apparently, poor impoverished Bellenhaus was only, only earning just over 150,000 euros a year. For US listeners, that's roughly 170,000 a year. Ollie thought this awfully miserly. Mind you, in Germany, the average base salary for a corporate CEO is 137 euro, thousand euros. So Ollie was at the mm, top end of the range. Now, typically, total comp for a German CEO ranges between about 100,000 and 450,000 euros a year, once you add in the bonuses and the profit sharing. But Ollie, Ollie was aghast that his pay was so meagre. How did he 
doubt did he manage to afford those pricey sports cars on only 13,000 euros a month? Hmm, I wonder. At any rate, Ollie marched straight to Marshalik, oddly not to Braun, and demanded demanded an annual salary of 950,000 euros. Or to put it another way, he asked for a 508% raise. Okay, listeners, I want you to try that on your CEO board or HR rep tomorrow. Go ahead, march into their offices and demand a 500% raise. Let me know how it goes. Ollie told the court, quote, the salary I received at Wirecard was not appropriate for my position for a long time. Yeah, you know, not commensurate with all his hard work sitting around playing Call of Duty on a big screen in his office. Marshalik, not surprisingly, rejected his proposed salary increase and instead offered him a one-time payment of 4.8 million euros. Demonstrating his financial prowess and keen negotiating skills, Bellenhouse agreed to it. In other words, he agreed to keep his €13,000 a month salary and get no raise, just a one-off bonus equivalent to five years of the requested increased salary he would not be receiving. (laughs) Said one-off €4.8 million didn't run through Wirecard's payroll but diverted from other company funds and dropped into Bellenhouse's foundation, e.g. private trust. In Liechtenstein... The truth that was formed long, uh, the trust that was formed really long before this payment, but then Ollie's been a little thin on truth on some of this, hasn't he? Hmm. But Bellenhouse got even with Wirecard. Oh, yes, he stuck it to them. He told the court he didn't own any Wirecard shares, as that would have been, quote, a bad investment. <laughs> Take that, Wirecard. <laughs> Ollie, is this about you never fully being in with the in-crowd at Wirecard? Maybe you were only allowed to see and perpetrate fraud for the Near East office. Is that what this is about? You're getting back at Brown for never having offered you a ride in the Maybach or invited you to ride in the private elevator? (sighs) Bellenhouse is questioned on day 10 by the public prosecutor's office. Now, he tells the court that the TPA business was a hermetically sealed hermetically sealed, fraud system that others within Wirecard couldn't access. Ollie, what happened to all those fraudulent contracts, do you suppose? Ah, well, now, according to Bellenhouse, only he, Braun, and the silent von Erfer would access these fake accounts. Okay, what happened to the technician and Marshall? Uh, honestly, I can't keep up with his stories. Okay, so he claims only he, Braun, and the silent von Erfer would access these fake accounts. Quote, the TPA, singular now, was generally closed off. We didn't let anyone get in there. Mm-hmm. Puffing himself up a bit, Ballenhaus claimed he was solely, solely responsible for the operational processing of Wirecard's TPA activities. Ah, so are you providing an alibi to Braun and von Erfer by saying you and you alone handled this fraud? Oh, God. Now, references to more than the 50 employees actively working on the TP side of the house were supposedly only something claimed so as to deceive the outside world. 
In fact, according to Brellenhaus, those folks would have worked for the Wirecard Processing Division. Hmm. Don't you wonder if their testimony will reflect this? As we still have to hear from some of those folks. Bellenhaus also claimed the TPA's IT was never integrated into that of the greater companies. Well, finally, something we can believe, because, recall, they'd outsourced the IT group to Greece and then given them nothing to do. Bellenhaus spoke of an IT parallel world of TPA, which is like a new multiverse theory. Oh, physicists of the world, sit up and pay attention. Okay, then Bellenhaus claimed that EY had come within inches of discovering the missing money at the company, when in 2019 it identified a software sales contract that was fake. Now, we all sat up, pricked up our ears here. Judge Fodish was incredulous, asking Bellenhaus, quote, so EY at that time knew that Wirecard was forging contracts? Bellenhaus says, ah, yeah? Judge Fodish, then what happened? Weren't there consequences? Nope, says Bellenhaus. The judges are stunned. <laughs> Quite frankly, so are we. Then Fodish says, on record, quote, they, meaning EY, could have handled this differently and then the whole issue would have been uncovered more than a year earlier? Uh, Bellenhaus said he engaged in some trickery to reduce the question right down to two million, which, I love this part, EY considered an insignificant amount. Yeah, if it's a right down of only two mil, pfft, we needn't bother with it. Fake, not fake, who cares? Now, according to evidence produced during Bellenhaus's testimony, EY actually stumbled over the Singapore trustee account fraud as far back as 2016 and asked Wirecard to clarify a letter received from Rajaratnam, which said he held no monies for Wirecard or any of its subsidiaries. Oops. But Bellenhaus and now von Erfer back in the mix, I guess it's not just Bellenhaus, so difficult to keep up with his stories. Bellenhaus and von Erfer allegedly wordsmithed an answer that satisfied EY. And after a second piece of correspondence came from Citadel saying, oh yeah, we forgot, oops, yeah, it turns out we do hold 150 million euros for the TPA. Okay, more nails in the EY coffin, let's say. And it's funny but just a few days after Judge Fodish expressed his absolute dismay that EY sat on these identified frauds at Wirecard, Arbus, our second most loved German regulator after Boffin, closed, yes, closed, its investigations into four of the current and former EY auditors of Wirecard, three of whom are or were partners at EY Germany. Why? Because the E-wires resigned from EY Germany in January of this year, as in a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Martin Darman resigned from EY Germany, but has stayed with EY, the family. And because he's left the German EY entity, he can't be probed by Opus. Andreas Latcher had already left EY. Remember, he went on to Deutsche Bank and then mm, left that position as well. A third partner and a more junior auditor who had also worked on Wirecard also resigned. You see, once they handed in their public accounting licenses in Germany, Arbus, under German law, 
could no longer investigate them and was forced to close the investigation. Opus can only investigate auditors actively enrolled as public accountants. So, ain't that convenient? Well, they walk free for now, until those EY lawsuits pick them up again. And with disclosure about EY, according to Bellinhouse's defense counsel, Florianetta, Ollie's testimony was concluded. <laughs> That's all, folks. Perhaps the most interesting part of Bellinhouse's testimony across the days was how he largely did not answer, or only evasively answered, inquiries about Wirecard Bank, suspected money laundering, and how the TPA sales worked exactly with respect to the company's marketing department. Listeners, this is telling, because really, there's minimal hard evidence to support Bellinhouse's claims about the TPA fraud. And what were those telegram IMs missing and, well, deleted, let's be honest, and some of the key witnesses sitting in other countries and unlikely to appear at this trial? There are a lot of reasons the ultimate beneficiaries of those dirty money flows don't care if Bellinhouse's story is accurate or not as the less scrutiny of those TPAs, the better for them. And then, finally, the court ruled on motions made by Braun and von Erfer's respective defence counsels, right, Dierlem and Statter, seeking those stays of the trial proceedings based on their allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, the mishandling of evidence, etc. Well, Judge Fodersch, lead judge, read the court's decision, quote, the chamber is convinced that the legal requirements for suspension are not met. The motions to stay were rejected. Now, the judges ruled that they didn't, uh, not fi- they didn't find any serious violation to the rule of law. And that's important. The chamber told Dear and Stretter that they could mount a, quote, effective defense without a suspension of proceedings. After all, said Fredish, the defense attorneys had, quote, always had the opportunity to see evidence from the police since the beginning of October 2022, but never used the opportunity. Okay, well, look, <laughs> let's be realistic here. The trial, the trial started in December, so that was only two months' lead. Admittedly, it was a lead. Among other things, the court pointed out that the unexpected, uh, or the expected, sorry, the expected duration of the proceedings of more than a year, in other words, we're going into 2024 here, would give the defense ample opportunity to also use defense options based on subsequently delivered file components to raise objections. In addition, Dillard, contrary to his expressed assurances to the court, had been found to have passed along data records to an IT service provider for an evaluation. And that didn't seem to earn any um, points for Brown's side with the judges. Anyway, throwing them a bone, Judge Frodish admitted that the size of the case files were extraordinarily or are extraordinarily high. However, the additional material that's been received since the beginning of November 2022, or a little about a month and a half before the trial began, really contain a lot of duplicates and files that are of little importance for the prosecution. As to the rest, quote, special efforts by defenders, quote, to some extent should be expected, 
quote, any disadvantages that may arise will have to be compensated for by the courts, says Fodish. In other words, defense counsel, pull up your socks and start burning some midnight oil getting acquainted with the volumes of exhibits and evidence. You'll have your moment in court to raise some defenses and challenge some of the uh, evidence that's submitted. Now, the court said that whilst the investigation results that are still outstanding, for example, the requests for the legal assistance abroad, right, the MLATs, mutual uh, legal assistance treaties, those those have not come back in, right? They're still waiting for those to be answered. Uh, and that, that that alone is not grounds for suspending the process. However, the court did agree to give the defence some time to catch up. So basically, they scheduled the next round of hearings in the matter for Wednesday, February 8th. In other words, resuming in a couple of days from now. This may be partially have been driven by Dearlam's insistence that he and the rest of the Braun defence team would, quote, not answer any questions from the defence attorneys of the other defendants, that is, for von Erfer and Ballenhaus, unless they were given a few days off to prepare. Now, the court had originally planned the next three days of the hearing for this purpose, but, quote, in addition, all those involved in the proceedings should be given the opportunity to work through the most recently received file components, said the judges. And according to the court, there is no appeal, appeal against the denial of uh, these motions. However, the decision could have repercussions after a verdict. According to litigants, defense attorneys could seek to challenge a subsequent ruling by citing the rejection of their motions. Uh huh. We may be going to, oh gosh, 2025. Can we go the distance? Ah, and now we're certainly unlikely to hear Brown's opening statement until much later this month. He dreamed that he stood in a shattery court with a snark with a glass in its eye, dressed in gown bands and a wig, was defending a pig on the charge of deserting its sty. In the matter of treason, the pig would appear to have aided, but scarcely abetted. While the charge of insolvency fails, it is clear if you grant the plea, never indebted. Extra points to the listeners who can name the source of that little ditty. That's all for today's episode. Keeping in mind Bellenhouse Wirecard Bank in Ireland, Wookie and TPAs, tune in for episode 38, The Man Behind the Curtain, to hear about another important case involving Wirecard with a surprising and positive outcome. I'm Mikhail Gordon. You've been listening to Lie, Spies and Corporate Crimes, the Wirecard Saga podcast. My thanks to the Compliance Podcast Network, to all of you listeners, of course, and the captain steering the good ship CPN, Tom Fox. I'll meet you back here, same time, same place, next week. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join us again for our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>